I think I was taught by a generation that self-compassion looked like sucking it up and just moving over something when really self-compassion is about giving yourself a chance to figure out what's going on and how to work through it. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at KarenGoldfingerBaker.com. My guest, Becca Ferguson, is a licensed professional counselor in Northern Arkansas. Becca's life began fully immersed in the Methodist church. From early childhood through youth ministry and with a strong, unbreakable family bond to the church, Becca's experiences led her to dutiful dedication. Over time, that dedication was focused on a twisted, manipulative, power-abusing, violent, and deceitful youth minister. Perhaps it was separation from the church environment, or perhaps it was growing wisdom as she matured, or perhaps it was experiencing safe, supportive love that led her to disconnect completely. For me, the abuse of power, the manipulations of doctrine, and the fears that God and religion can kick up can clearly be the foundation of religious trauma. This episode includes mention of violence and abuse. Choose your environment wisely as you listen to this episode of the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. This is really exciting. Yeah, really nice. We When we first connected last week, I thought, what does a Jewish girl from Cleveland, Ohio have to talk about with a woman living in Arkadelphia, Arkansas? Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Wait, you're not still living there, are you? No, actually. Okay. And it's really funny that this is episode 111 because my house address was 111 growing up. So oh, crazy. I'm like, let's talk about trauma for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. Episode 111 triggering your... I'm already path. here. I'm, I'm, I'm already in Five Flight Freeze. We're, we've right. got this. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. That's my goal is to just whip up and kick up your shit. Uh, but you did grow up in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, yes. and where and you're living in Arkansas still, right? Yeah, I'm in Northwest Arkansas, which is like a completely different state than South Arkansas. What's <laughs> so, the difference? You know, if you have grown up in South Arkansas, you have feelings towards Northwest Arkansas because uh, Walmart pretty much is all Northwest Arkansas. 
It's funny, I was talking with my parents about it the other night, and my dad was like, well, Northwest Arkansas would be the same as South Arkansas if Walmart didn't just buy all of everything up there. And I'm like, well, okay. So, you know, it's a completely different atmosphere up here. We're pretty much everything that you need. You don't need to go anywhere else in the state because we got pretty much everything up here. I see. Okay, got it. So there's more development. Yeah. Not as rural. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends. I I live out like in what my mother calls the boondocks because it's 20 minutes away from town. Arkadelphia is five minutes away from everything. And so the fact that you have to drive 20 minutes into town, my mom is like, mm, that's the boondocks. And I'm you're like, the boonies. yeah, okay. You're a city person. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. So tell me when you were living at 111. Yeah. We don't have to give your street address. <laughs> Let's go to when you were five. Mm. What'd you love to do the most? Oh, Lord, you're really you're really starting there, aren't you? I, I'm a 90s kid. That would have been like good old almost kindergarten age. My parents raised my sister and I, I have a sister that's three years older than me. And so it's just the four of us. Um, Actually, we moved down to Arkansas from New York. Mm -hmm. And so I was raised in Arkansas. I'm the only person in my family with a Southern accent. And when I was five, I mean, my mom was very involved in church. So we went to the Children's Day Out program. And I would say around that time, I probably, we had a cat. Um, I was involved with everything that, the children's programs had to offer at our church. As far as finding things that we loved to do, that was a little difficult because my parents were in the process of opening up their own business at that time. And so we were very involved in that process. We didn't have a lot of autonomy as far as figuring out our own unique gloves. Mm, I see. Okay. What does that mean, a children's day out program? I think at that point in time, Preschool wasn't something that was part of the public school system. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. I remember correctly, preschool became a part of public school after I went to kindergarten. And so Children's Day Out was for like babies to kindergarten age. And you were supposed to like go there for a certain amount of hours because there was a lot of stay at home moms that would need to like get errands done and all those kind of things. So it was like crafts, Bible stories, playtime, learning things, recess, all of that kind of stuff. I see. Okay. And so it was, it was a church program. Yes. Yeah. Inside of our church building, actually. Got it. Okay. And was it run by volunteers or by staff of the church? No, actually, at that point in time, it was a full-blown like daycare-ish yeah. program. So there was staff members that the church hired. And Miss Leona was my my teacher. Um, I still remember her. And uh, she was a big part of me growing up. She was the director of uh, CDO. The building is still there, um, but now it's Sunday school classrooms. Got it. Okay. So... What I'm hearing is you're five, you're clearly very connected to the church, Mm -hmm. right? You're hearing Bible stories, you're, I imagine coloring books are also Bible related and everybody there is a member of the church, church families. Yeah. 
So fast forward to your teen years. Oof. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's yeah. where it really hits. <laughs> so yeah. That's where it gets a little difficult. So uh, what what decade of my teen years would you like to know about? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about school first. Were you in a church school or were you in public school? No, I was in public school. So the thing about Arkadelphia, and this is what kind of weirded me out when I moved up to Northwest Arkansas, when I was driving around with uh, my husband in town, when I first moved up here, I was like, didn't we just pass an elementary school? And he's like, yeah. And I said, but this is an elementary school. And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, they're like five minutes away. That makes no sense. And he's like, well, we have multiple elementary, high schools, different middle schools and all that kind of stuff. You can choose the school you want to go to. And in Arkadelphia, there's one school. I see. So, you know, there's one kindergarten, first grade, one second, third, one fourth and fifth middle school than high school. You don't get a choice on really where you go to school. There was a private school that was a Christian-based private school, but besides it costing money, I don't really remember why that wasn't an option for me to go to that one. Got it. Got it. Okay. So interestingly enough, you might not know this book. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Ah, yes. No, I I definitely do know that. You do. You do. Okay, nice. Well, the movie is coming out tomorrow. Oh, wow. Yeah, this show will be a couple weeks after it came out. So it will have already come out. But yeah, the movie is coming out tomorrow. So let's go to that awkward time of hitting puberty. So let's say you're in sixth, seventh grade. Mm -hmm. What was life like for you then? I grew up in a very obviously conservative Christian family. A little bit of background about my parents. My mom was raised Catholic and my dad was raised Methodist. And so Arkadelphia doesn't really have like a booming Catholic population. So we were raised in the um, First Methodist Church that was down there. My mom, she just didn't necessarily like all the boundaries that the Catholic Church had. So that was why she was like, well, we're going to do something a little bit more open. Now, with that being said, my mom became the accountant or treasurer of the church as like a paid staff member when we were kids. Um, So church again became, it was always still a really vital part. When I was in sixth, seventh or eighth grade, that was an extremely awkward time for me. I can remember this so visually. I had an incredible friend. Her name is Anna. I love her. We still talk to to each other. She now has a little girl um, and her her three daughters are like the best thing in the whole entire world. I'm like, you're moving way too fast for me. But she was my best friend um, in middle school. I remember when I started my period for the first time. So like when you asked me what school was like, I remember that day I was wearing blue corduroy pants, light blue corduroy pants. Mm. And I told Anna in the bathroom and she made me wrap her big marshmallow jacket around my waist because she was like, we've got this. Don't worry. People made fun of me. I was bullied really, really bad, but I wasn't ever really involved in anything until I got into seventh grade Mm. because it was an odd transition in our church. Children's ministry was basically like all ages until sixth grade. 
And then youth ministry started in seventh grade. Children's ministry, is that an educational? That's the education Mm -hmm. of the children, not children being ministers. No. So there's like different age groups that you join inside of the church um, and different programs. So like in children's ministry, we got to do like Wednesday after school programs that we could be involved in, like church choir or the kids choir or whatever they wanted to call it. And the after school program was like UM kids. We got to do vacation Bible school. And the children's minister that we had when my sister and I were young enough to be in children's ministry, we didn't really like. Mm. And we were constantly like coming home crying because we didn't like it. Mm. And so um, my mom, she did say like, you don't have to go back to the after school program. But then we got a new children's minister And that was like when my sister was too old to be in children's ministry, old enough to be in youth ministry, but she ended up helping the children's director and like becoming her intern and all that kind of stuff. Whereas like I was still in children's ministry, but I was like such an adult child. If you want to say that I was more of like a helper than I was a child. And so the children's minister kind of became like a part of our family because she was just like a young woman in her 20s and my parents basically like adopted her into our family i don't know if that makes sense but children's ministry and youth ministry and and there's young adults adults and then after i guess you just never stop being an adult yeah so now when you were in youth ministry yeah so now you've got, you already had your period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You've already worn the marshmallow coat. Yeah. And and I imagine, right, just like all of us, mm-hmm. your world starts to change. Like, who am I? Am I a woman? Am I a child? Like, what the fuck with this whole changing bodies thing? Yes. Let alone boys, pressures, school, oh, yeah. achievement, and in some cases, God, like, what is my relationship with God? And am I, am I reverent? Am I godly? Whatever. Now you're in youth ministry. How was that? Oh, well, if you would have asked me when I was in seventh grade, I would have said it was the best time of my life. Mm. As an adult, I look back and I see there was a lot of things that were wrong with it. So my youth ministry experience started the summer before my seventh grade year. And I really think that's when everything changed for me. Mm -hmm. There was a camp in Hot Springs, which is about 45 minutes away from Arkadelphia, but it's like the United Methodist camp. And I went to that the summer before my seventh grade year. It was the junior high week long camp. And the youth minister that we had at the time was the dean of the camp. So he was the one that came up with the curriculum and all the different things that was going on. He was new. He became the youth minister at our church when I was in fifth grade, I believe. And so I saw him doing all these really cool things when I was in sixth grade. And at that point, it was like, oh my gosh, he's like the coolest thing since sliced bread. Like, I think that he is awesome. And I mean, you have to also remember this was before like the contemporary Christian movement really started. In our church, there was no 
contemporary service. There was no guitars or anything like that. It was just an organ and hymns. And so I like grew up doing just the hymns. And when I went to this summer camp, it was very different because it was, it pulled on your emotions and there was a band, like an actual worship band with guitars and everything. They had like a come to the altar, give your life to Jesus type kind of moment. And I just remember being there, like everyone was crying during all the worship services. All these kids were just crying. They were building all of these amazing relationships with each other. And the thing that stood out the most to me in this camp was that I was a very big rule follower my whole entire childhood. I felt immense guilt if I didn't do what I was supposed to do as far as the rules. And so when my mom was packing me my suitcase for the camp, you know, she put pads in there just in case I started my period. Um, And she was like, let me put a pair of flip flops in here. And that way, you know, if you want to use it when you go to the pool or something like that, you can. And I ended up being like, no, mom, it says on the rules, no open toed shoes are allowed. And so I had these clunky ass white tennis shoes. And, you know, my body is obviously developing. I'm not really wearing like a bra at that point. And I go to this camp where all of these girls who are two years older than me are wearing bras and makeup and doing their hair and boys, 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 boys. And they have a dance on Thursday night. And I'm here standing in the back without my best friend, all alone wearing clunky ass white tennis shoes that I can't take off because my feet stink from wearing the clunky ass white tennis shoes. I I was just like, I hate this. Like, I don't like all this pressure. But then you go to the worship service the last night, and it's drilled in your head that God was there at this church camp. And when you leave, the whole entire world is going to change and people aren't going to take you seriously. And you're going to have to fight your discipleship. And so it made it made like a very like clear black and white picture for me. Either you're at these church events where you experience God or you're not. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to experience God. And it's your responsibility to make sure that God is present in all of those other places. And so as a 12, 13-year-old kid, I'm like, what is all this responsibility that's on my back 24-7 to make sure God's word is out there? And I have to be like Jesus? Like, what is all of this responsibility that I'm carrying? And it was it was a tough start and transition. And I really believe that's like, I lost a lot of my childhood in that transition. Mm, so interesting. I, on the podcast in previous episodes, I, I've talked about this. It's one line that is part of a prayer that says, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it's essentially, you shall learn the words and essentially the ways and you shall teach your children and they shall teach their children. Mm-hmm. And the first time I heard it, I was five and I thought, wait a minute, I'm going to have children and I have to teach them something that I'm learning right now. Yep. I have to take this shit seriously. Oh yeah. There's I no have a responsibility. Yeah. There's no messing it up. Yeah. And yeah. And it was at that moment where I was like, oh wait, I have a responsibility as a Jew mm-hmm. and I'm five. I better grow the hell up. 
Yeah. Because I'm going to have children. Yeah. So, so really interesting that you came away with like the same thing. Mine was because I was still five, right? I was going to follow. I wasn't going to break the rule. I didn't know that like, oh, wait, I don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. Really interesting. Okay. So now this is your first sort of like crisis of conscience. Yeah. And there was plenty of those. And my start into youth ministry was very traumatic. The youth minister that we had at our church, I don't know if he diagnosed himself with this or if a professional diagnosed him with it, but he always talked about how he had a disorder called intermittent explosive disorder. Mm. He talked freely about that? Yeah, he talked openly about that. And I I think it was more of like a threatening tactic than anything. Mm. Like if you get on my bad side, I have intermittent explosive disorder. So he had a temper and a, a pretty bad one. People were scared of him, but they were were not scared of him enough to do something about it. So when I got back from camp, all of a sudden, like I was just obsessed with him. I was. And, you know, as a teenager, like it's like you have a, you have a right to have those little obsessions and all that kind of stuff. But for me, he was the one that introduced me to God, you know, like until this moment in my life, there was no clarity. And then all of a sudden, like I go to this camp and he's the one responsible for introducing me to this whole new God. Right. And so I became pretty like obsessed with the youth ministry going to it. Our first school event that we had, all of the churches are Philadelphia. Now, I want you to imagine a town with a population of less than 10,000 people and 36 churches. Okay. So everyone went to church, but everyone went to their respective churches, right? And everyone in their respective churches was trying to get them, get other people to go to their churches. And so it was like this big battle between like all the churches fighting against each other. And so all the youth ministers got together and developed something called One Ministries. Mm -hmm. And that was where all of the youth groups got together and had big events all together at one church. And um, so the start of the school year, we have the One Ministries event, big worship thing. All the youth groups are together in a parking lot with a band on like the back of like a semi-truck trailer bed getting all excited and all this kind of stuff. And I don't remember exactly what happened right before, but I know that my youth minister was upset because of something that I had said. So I was feeling a lot of guilt. And I remember going home because it was a Wednesday. So like I volunteered for the children's ministry. And then like I went home and was upset about something that he said And then told my sister and my sister's trying to convince me like, yeah, he's an asshole. You don't need to be involved in this. Like he's a bad dude. And my parents are like encouraging me like, yeah, you don't have to do any youth ministry because I told you he's a bad person. And which is weird because my parents never encouraged me to not do anything with church. I remember my sister and I in our front yard and we had this dumbbell weight and she was like, get mad, throw the weight. And like, she was wanting me to just not go to church, but I did. And then I went to the event and he is standing off in the corner being all mopey. My youth minister was, 
And I went to him and was like, are you just going to be pissed off at me? Um, Of course, I didn't say pissed back then because Jesus. (laughs) But, you know, I was just like, what's happening? And I remember him just saying, you have to choose. It's either your family or me and the church because your family like has treated me like shit since I've gotten here. They don't like me. They want me to fail and blah, 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 blah. And partially like my parents did not like him for a good reason. Honestly, he gave his reasons, but he made me choose. And he was the responsibility that I had on myself came with Because if you choose them, then you won't have any friends. You won't have any community. You won't have like what you had at church camp. You won't have like the support of the church and all this kind of stuff. So then it's like this life or death situation. If I am not there for him, then I'm not there for God. And I'm not fulfilling my, you know, need (laughs) for heaven after I die. So I chose him and I told my parents that I chose him. And instead of like my parents doing anything about it, that's just kind of, it was known that Becca wasn't going to change and Becca was just going to do what her youth minister wanted her to do. And so there was no like ultimatums really for me at that point. I got so deep into my like relationship with him that I mean, he was my best friend and I even remember like texting him and being like, I know you get mad sometimes. If you feel like you need to hurt someone, I'd rather you hurt me than other people because I deserve it. And of course he never did anything about that. Like he just said, okay, you know, and so really not the best character in the whole entire universe. And there was a lot of instances of things that I was taught that made it really difficult for me as an adult and for me to know what a healthy relationship looks like and to know what, you know, healthy conversations and healthy religious life looks like as well, because I believe those can exist, um, just not within the four brick walls of a church sometimes. Yeah. So I want to go back to your parents and your sister Mm -hmm. saying this is a bad dude. What do you know what it was that made them believe he's a bad dude? So he worked for a different church before he worked for ours um, and was only there for like two years. And I think the reason why he got fired, if I remember correctly, was because he was spending the church's money on his own personal expenses. And my mom being the treasurer of the church was getting all of these receipts and there would be things on there like bras. And when my mom would be like, Hey, you are buying bras with the church's money he has a teenage daughter. And so it was like, you can't buy bras with the church's money. And it's like, well, I'm using them as water balloon launchers. They're really good for that, for the church games. And so he could get himself out of it or something stupid like that. That was a big part of it. Like the money aspect of it. He was constantly like taking money from the church and like writing it off as different expenses. And she would like go to the pastor and the pastor would be like, oh, don't worry about it. Like he's doing what's best for the kids and blah, 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 blah. My parents don't like deceit. Your parents don't like deceit. Yeah, I hear that. It wasn't that they saw a manipulative predator. The other big part of it is that my sister, like I said, she was three years older than me. My sister went to youth group 
for maybe the first year that she could have gone to youth and didn't like it mm-hmm. and wanted to not go to youth anymore because she just what she didn't get good vibes from it. And whenever my mom would be like, hey, he's spending money that's XYZ, not allowed, blah, 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 blah. Then he would be like, well, what is she to talk about? Like, she doesn't even let her daughter come to youth because she doesn't like me and they're holding this against me and blah, blah, blah. So he was constantly like using my sister and I against her. And it was not a really good relationship. What was your relationship beyond this? Like, you're going to, you are going to make yourself his punching bag, essentially, mm-hmm. whether it's verbal or physical. Was your relationship intimate? No. So it, it depends on your definition of intimate. Like, there was never any like sexual relationship mm-hmm. or anything of that nature with him. But I was, I mean, like, he was my best friend. I spent a lot of time with him, like one-on-one. And when I look back at it now, I'm like, dude, I was like 13, 14, 15 years old spending one-on-one time with a man in his 30s. Like, that's weird, you know? And he had like a wife and kids. And no one really batted an eye at it. Like, no one mentioned, they were just like, well, Becca can take care of herself. But it's like, no one knew what was really going on behind the scenes. My parents didn't even know what was going on. Um, I don't think they really wanted to know uh, just because my mom's dedication to the church was so high. It wouldn't matter if she said, Becca, we're leaving because she has told my sister has told me this multiple times. My parents have told me this multiple times. Like we couldn't have forced you away from that relationship Mm. with him. And I'm like, I was a child. You could have done anything. Yeah. You know, but that's not what happened. So, no, the relationship wasn't necessarily, like, intimate, but I do remember when I got, like, older, like, into high school, like, I started calling him dad just because, like, I thought of him as more of a father figure, and he played on that. Like, he made my parents look like awful people to me, and so, like, my parents were the evil people that were going to separate him from me. I imagine all of this is... Confusing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fucked up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. What did it what happened in terms of your your typical like teen friendships? So I had I had one friend, Anna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everyone that I knew, really, they didn't they didn't bug me or touch me or really anything. I, because Becca's just gonna go to church. Anything that I was involved with, like I was in band. And, you know, when my youth minister said that band wasn't something or band was something that was going to take me away from going to church stuff, then I quit band. You know, when things got in the way of me being being able to go to church, then I quit those things because church was more important. And going to church was what was going to help me reach my ultimate goal, which was being an ordained minister in the Methodist church. So... Anna stuck close to me. And the reason why her and I have been good friends for so long is because she literally put up with all my shit. She went to all the church stuff with me. I think she she was able to discern when things were healthy and unhealthy, and she was able to separate from it, but I wasn't. And so like she put up with that when other people didn't. And she just kind of supported me 
through every decision I made. Yeah. At what point did you notice that this was unhealthy or wrong or all any of it? It wasn't until I was um, with my now husband. Mm. There was a couple times where I noticed that it wasn't okay before then. I Like I can remember a couple moments. One in particular was like, I think I was like a sophomore or junior in college. The church camp that we would go to every summer, for some reason, he texted me like my youth minister texted me, I think like the night before camp was supposed to start. And he was like, why aren't you coming? I was like, I'm not in junior high anymore. I'm not helping you with this because like you, it's your responsibility. And for like all the summers after I graduated high school and like my senior year of high school, I think it was my, my junior, senior, freshman year of college, he ended up completely just saying, oh, well, you're my intern. I got to go do this other thing. I can't do this camp like two weeks beforehand. And I would have to like come up with all the stuff and make it happen. And then he would swoop in for the group photo and put his name on it. And so I I think at one summer, I was like, I'm not going to do it. And I'm sitting on the couch with my parents the night before camp starts. And he's texting me like, why aren't you coming? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you blah, blah, blah. And I looked at my dad and I was like, he wants me to come to church camp. And my dad was like, dude, you have like battered wife syndrome over here. And I was like, okay, maybe, but I still went to camp and I still ended up helping him. And like all the guys that I dated, they thought that it was really weird that I was so attached to him. They would be like, hey, that's not healthy what he's doing. There was a lot of stuff that happened in between. But when I got with my husband, he pretty much gave me like an ultimatum-ish. And it's like the only ultimatum that I've been okay with where he was like, you're leaving and you're moving up here. When my husband started treating me with respect, that's when I was like, that's what men are supposed to treat you like. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) I'm like, aren't you supposed to get mad at me for that? Or aren't you supposed to hit me for that or something like that? So it was... Is difficult to process. Hmm. Did the youth minister, was he physical? He did do some physical stuff. Yeah. This is where things get tricky because this is what everyone saw. He never really like humbled me to the ground in private. Um, But whenever he did do the physical stuff, it was always in front of a crowd of people. And I thought that it was so normal. I thought it was a joke. I didn't I didn't know that a 30-something-year-old man slapping a teenager across the face in front of a group of people was wrong. Like, I thought that was funny. And so that's been a big hesitation about me coming out and talking about this story, because I know if people listen to my story, especially people that I grew up with, they're going to get mad because they're not going to want to accept responsibility for their part in noticing that that was weird and not saying anything about it. So I'm fully aware that like people are going to be upset that I am talking about this. But yeah, he he did this little game. This was when I was in high school where he would like hold out his hand and he would point at the inside of his palm or on the outside of his hand. And he, I would say something stupid or do something dumb. 
like a teenager would do. And then he would look at me and he would be like discipline or abuse. And I would always joke around and be like, well, abuse doesn't hurt as much as discipline. And then he would smack me across the face backhanded. But it was always followed by like laughter and whatever. And, you know, there's time where he dropped a sledgehammer on my foot. And the one that really bothered me was we were at a big church convention. There must have been like 20 or 30 people around, maybe like three or four different youth ministers. And um, I did or said something dumb. And he had like this Nerf sword around and like literally threw me on top of this table and started hitting me in the back with a nerf sword until the foam came off. And I just remember everyone watching it and like their mouths and jaws were open, but I was just laughing. So of course, like people aren't going to report something when the person that's being abused is laughing because this is quote unquote normal, you know? Yeah. Did you see it as play or did you think you deserved it? Cause you're using language. Like I said something stupid. Yeah. I really did think that I deserved it. Now, here's where I think the manipulation came into play was like everything that he was doing was for me to be better. That's what that was your understanding. Yes. And also, I had never had anyone love me before. And he truly loved and appreciated me. And people that love and appreciate you hurt you respectfully that was what you believed that he truly loved you and appreciated so it's like in my understanding and this is really fucked up i'm just throw this out there but like my brain at the point was like well god sent his son down to get crucified and beat up so it makes sense that like someone that i look at as a parent is going to hurt me in order to be better Mm -hmm. you know fuck man (laughs) want to talk about religious trauma yeah this is religious trauma (laughs) not just religious trauma right this is just fucked up people who happen to be in religion yes which is really difficult because i would say i've been with my husband for it'll be six years this fall and my husband is literally the best human being in the whole entire universe we both have anxiety he once went to a youth or not a youth mister um a therapist that asked him how is it with both your wife and you having anxiety and he just kind of chuckled he was like we work really well together like we both know what (laughs) impresses each other's buttons but he really helped he helps me he knows when i'm having like a ptsd episode He can tell when I completely dissociate and can tell when like I'm projecting onto him. And so there's like multiple times where it's like he'll do something and then it just like I go completely back to that time when I was in youth group. And it's like I can almost like see my youth minister's face on his body. And then I have to like separate and he's like, okay, whoa, hey, I'm Casey over here. Hello. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm back. How did you get there? How did you get from manipulated fucked over young woman to healthy i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna show you who i am and all of my past and my beliefs how did you get there so fun fact for all of your listeners um and you know for you as well this is the first time that i'm publicly talking about what Mm. happened with my youth minister and you know i did not talk about this because trauma comes with guilt Mm -hmm. 
And so I wouldn't necessarily say I'm 100% healthy right now. I'm probably at like 85%. I still have a lot of distortions that I work through. Um, My therapist that I go and see, basically the whole entire sessions that we have with each other is her telling me something that I already know and then me replying with, fuck you. Okay, I already know that. And then she's like, okay, well, I'm telling you again, you need to remember it. But with my becoming the person that I am today, I do credit a lot of that to my husband, but I would be really mistaken if I credited it all to everybody in my life that's supportive of me now, because I had to make the active decision to leave the situation. And that was one of the hardest things that I had ever done. Yeah. Yep. I imagine. So let's acknowledge that. Yes. That you saw, don't want this anymore. If you're okay, I'll tell the story of me leaving. Long story short, what had happened is I went to college outside of Arkadelphia. I went to University of the Ozarks in Clarksville, which is about a three-hour drive. After I graduated, I went to become a youth minister in Kansas. And I was there for about nine months. And man, that, that church treated me awful. I mean, like, I just was blown away. But when I was there, I loved helping people, loved it. But I'm like, I cannot help people within all the restrictions that this church and any church is giving me. I cannot be real with them. Like, I couldn't talk to kids about, like, they would come to me with questions about, like, sex and drugs and alcohol and all these things. And it's like, I have to tell them alcohol is bad. Sex is bad. Dude, stay a virgin until you get married. I don't believe in that shit. I mean, like, come on, like, sex is fun. Like, let's have sex safe, (laughs) you know? And so... It was so hard for me to be the real person that people needed me to be. Now, the church ended up putting me on a mental health leave at one point because I was dissociating at work and I wasn't doing what they wanted me to do. So they put me on a mental health leave and I saw a therapist and that was the first time that I had really seen a therapist. And Joel was the person I saw, which I will plug him all day long. He's an incredible human being. He really tested me. And I was had gotten out of a relationship at that point in time. I kind of think I ran, ran away to Kansas, running away from my youth minister, running away from my problems, running away from the guy I was in a relationship with, trying to prove people that I'm XYZ, ABC, I'm all that. And it's like, look at that, I fart bubbles. Like, I'm just an amazing person. But it's like, I, I failed again, basically. And in all of the therapy sessions that I had, we made a lot of progress. But then at the end of it, um, you know, Jesus doesn't pay for health insurance. And so um, I was paying out of pocket to go see him. And when I finally decided I'm leaving the church, I'm going back to Arkadelphia, I am going to do something with my life. He looked at the, I told him, I said, dude, this is like $2,500 worth of therapy. I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to pay you. I don't have any money. I don't have a job or whatever. And he looked at me and he said, Becca, go, go back home, go to school, become a therapist. When a young woman is sitting in your office and says, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with my life. um, And I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. Tell them that it's covered. And so Um, I resisted it for a couple months, but then I eventually went back to school to become a therapist. And my youth minister did not appreciate that because he wanted, he did not 
like that I was going to take control and do something that I wanted to do because he always wanted me to do something that he wanted to do. And so the fact that he no longer had control, and then I was also dating my husband at that point. Um, And so my husband had a louder voice than his. He didn't like that either. That's when I started to see a lot of the patterns and the problems that were popping up. And then I talked to another church member who was just a little old lady in the church about like, I think what Mike was doing to me um, was wrong. And she said, well, the Me Too movement was really popular. And so she was like, we need to get him fired. And apparently there was a lot of people that were trying to get him fired for an extended period of time. They were like, well, you could say that he sexually abused you. We could get him fired. But the thing is, he never did. And so I wasn't about to lie about it. I got really mad at her. He did abuse you. Yeah. Yes. And and then I I went to my youth minister. And I said, hey, just to let you know, like they're about to start like a, a coup basically to try and get you fired. So he helped me write a letter to the pastor saying that I was leaving the church. And then I went and talked to him, had him like approve that letter, gave it to the pastor had a one-on-one conversation with my youth minister. He cried. He said he had no idea that he ever hurt me, had no idea what was going on and all this kind of stuff. He loved me like a daughter. He wished the best for me. He would get out of my life if that's what I needed and blah, 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 blah. And I remember calling my husband and telling him like, I think that he really means it this time. Like he, he really does care about me. He loves me. He wants me what's best. I'll, I'll give him another chance. And my husband, that's when he said, you are leaving and you're moving up here. Mm. And that was when I was like, he always stayed in his own lane when I talked about my youth minister, but not, not at that particular moment. No, <laughs> he yeah. was like, I'm not giving my mouth shut anymore. You gotta, you gotta come up here. Mm-hmm. And so that was my big big move. And I have gone to church one time since then. So you you went to school, you became a therapist. Mm-hmm. Tell me who your people are. Who do you work with? So I own my own practice, actually. So um, and I have an incredible intern, love her to death. And I have a couple people that, you know, rent space in my office. Mm-hmm. Part of my healing journey has been that I need to do things independently And I need to be like my own boss and make my own decisions. And so I have been on this journey of trying to trust that the decisions I'm making in my own practice are good decisions. So for me, my people are my, I have great family, like with my husband and his parents are super great. And we really, you know, lean on and support each other, but as far as in this world of therapy, like I have a couple people that I lean on, but when it comes to me making decisions, like I have my old supervisor that I'll reach out to my therapist that I'll reach out to. And I just kind of try to start trusting myself again and trusting that I can make good decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Who are your, who are the clients that you work with, like a profile type or a... Yeah. You know, you wouldn't believe the type of population that I work with, but I work with young women with religious trauma. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> yes. As yeah. we always say, we we are our own best client. Yes. So yeah. I work with a lot of young women, usually start at like age 20 and up. 
that have religious trauma or sexual trauma, family abuse. I have a lot of clients with eating disorders because I've struggled with that. Um, That's another part of my story. A lot of people that have like attachment issues is really what I go to. And then I also help a lot of therapists. Like I'm the therapist for therapists and that's what I love. But my population is like exclusively women. Mm-hmm. I love working with women. It's not that I don't like working with men. It's that I am able, I, <laughs> I was starting to discover how much I loved working with women. And then I got one male client. And in the middle of the session, I said, girl, you have no idea. And then I was like, I'm so sorry. I was like, I only have female clients except for you. And then he was like, I probably should find someone. And I'm like, yeah, I'll give you a referral. I'm so sorry. Um, But so I work a lot with women's empowerment and try to do like keynote and speaking events for women empowerment. I'm doing a women's empowerment event. Like I'm, I'm doing like the damn thing. I'm like putting one on on May 13th. I have a photographer coming out that's going to do like a photo shoot um, and get people all like riled up and ready to go. And so I build a lot of things for young women to really make their own decisions and learn how to trust themselves and understand that like, this is so, so crazy. I specialize in trauma and I think I always knew that I kind of struggled with it. But it wasn't until I started seeing um, a different therapist starting in January of 2022 is when I started seeing her. And dude, like she told me I had PTSD from the jump. And I was like, what? That's I, I haven't been to war. And I like I told my my supervisor, I'm like, yeah, I'm just kind of discovering I have PTSD. And she was like, you got abused by your youth minister for almost 10 plus years and you have PTSD. That's absolutely insane. And I'm like, okay, everyone can stop making fun of me right now. Like I appreciate it. So yeah, Yeah. I do a lot of stuff with women that kind of mimic my story because they help me find the answers too. And so I have a lot of my own reflection time as well. Absolutely. I hear that. So this show will come out after your women's empowerment event. Yeah. If somebody is interested in moving away the shit to be with their own power Mm -hmm. or has religious trauma. Can you do work across state lines? So I can't do therapy across state lines, at least not yet. But one of the really cool things that I decided to do um, in order to help people across state lines, because I do have a lot of followers all over, is I created online courses. Nice. So I'm really pumped about that. They're all about trauma. Um, And so I got one on the window of tolerance, which is like the fight, flight, freeze mode. Um, I've got one on smart goals, um, another one on the wise mind. And then my absolute favorite is one on self-care versus self-comfort. And I sell those on my website for 27 bucks. Um, So they're just like super easy peasy lemon squeezy. I say easy peasy lemon squeezy. They're not easy peasy lemon squeezy, but they're 30 minute videos with full workbooks. And I just encourage everyone to go on there and check it out for sure. Wow. That sounds like solid gold for not a big investment. We can talk about that another time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're giving away some brilliance there. That's great. We'll have a link yeah. yeah. And for As far as like the cost for my stuff, when I was coming up with it, it's 
I'm the type of person, I didn't get these resources when I was mm-hmm. younger because my parents didn't know that they existed. Right. And so I am trying to put low cost mental health resources out there that the average teenager who has a job because we can now do child labor in Arkansas now, um, thanks to our marvelous governor, which I hope she hears that the average teenager that has a job can afford a $27 course with their debit card and they can learn something about themselves and be like, see, dad, I have a problem. Help. I love that generosity. And that purpose and mission. Yeah, very nice. So we'll have a link in the show notes to your website. And I'm even more excited because I love this podcast so much. I'm giving 10% off to all the listeners for all of the stuff with their own unique code. So I'll give you that code. Pretty sure I made it. It's trauma hiders. And so people that are interested and want to check it out, they can go use that code and get 10% off on top of the $27. Wow. That's terrific. Thank yeah. you so much. Do of you course. Hear that, listeners? Yeah. A gift to you. Fabulous. Well, tell me what's been most helpful for you being in the Trauma Hiders Club today? Man, I'm telling you, I, I'm an overthinker. So I will leave this um, podcast and I will overthink about everything that I've told you today. I 100% will. I will go home. I will tell my husband. I'll be like, oh my gosh, I talked about it. I think I said his name once or twice. That's kind of terrifying. And I will, I will overthink it. But then I will be like, Becca, this is step one. And if Mm -hmm. you don't say it once, then you're not going to say it twice. And I've talked Mm -hmm. about it one-on-one with my clients and like in small group settings with my clients, but I'm not asking for permission anymore to tell my story. Um, And I think that was a big part of it was I didn't want to hurt people for, you know, lack of a better words. But I talked with my father-in-law last night and I said, I'm going to tell my story tomorrow on this podcast. And he said, okay. And I was like, I thought about calling my dad tonight and making sure and warning them and letting them know about it. And he said, why are you going to do that? He's like, you don't need to do that. He was like, there's no reason for you to warn people who didn't warn you of what was going on and how it was going to affect you for the rest of your life. And so um, there's no warning on this. (laughs) Besides the trigger warning that probably needs to go on. (laughs) Right. What I hear is freedom. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I hear is freedom. What I also hear is self-compassion. I am so glad that you said that yeah. because anybody that has trauma struggles with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, my therapist a couple weeks ago, I have um, on top of all my other fun little alphabet disorders, I have what's called OCPD, um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder which is nicknamed for obsessive compulsive perfectionist disorder, which wonder where I got that. Right. But one of the things that she told me, she's like, the only way to heal this is through self-compassion and believing that you can trust yourself again. So I am on like week seven of this self-compassion workbook that I absolutely hate with a burning passion inside of my soul, because I actually have to take time for myself and be very, very, what's the word that I'm looking for? I mean, I got to be intimate when I'm writing it, you know, Mm -hmm. I've got to, I've got to be real with myself, but I have to choose me. Yeah. And self-compassion, I think I was taught by a generation that self-compassion looked like sucking it up and just moving 
over something when really self-compassion is about giving yourself a chance to figure out what's going on and how to work through it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm really glad that you said that. That's very validating. I appreciate that. Look at that. It's almost like you know what you're doing or something like that. That's so weird. Imagine that. (laughs) (laughs) Only 111 episodes in. That's right. That's right. And also years of being a coach, let alone a lifetime of therapy. Um, I want to read you something. This is actually part of this sculpture that I have um, that I don't have a place to put right now, but it happens to say this thing that I want to say to you. When you step into the thing you are, the world does not burn, but glows more brightly with the light you bring. I love that. You're going to have to send that to me for sure, because... You know, I have a perfect spot in my office to put that quote. Love it. I love that. I appreciate this time so much. Um, I'm meeting with a client in a couple minutes, and I know that she's a mirror of me. And so whenever she starts getting worried about stuff, then I'll just be like, I did it. See, I did it. I did it. So you can do it too. That's right. Hopefully we can start leaning on each other for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to acknowledge your courage, Thank your you. bravery, the work that you've done and the love that you have for self and for others, your generosity and your compassionate soul. Well, thank you. I appreciate being on this podcast. It's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.